Thanks for tuning in to the capstone today. This is the second episode in season three. The first episode and the other two seasons are all available on our website, www.thecapstone.info. I'm so happy that we could continue producing these episodes over the last year as everyone was hunkered down in their own spaces, distancing themselves from the prospects of contracting the COVID virus. Um, we managed to connect with folks in their homes and workplaces, and we have some really great interviews for you. But I need to make a disclaimer about the audio quality in various episodes. Due to a bit less control over the technical aspects of things, there might be a blip or a pop here and there. And as I've said before, um, just think of it as us keeping it real. We wanted to bring you these amazing students and their incredible capstone projects because we know that between our guests and those of you who are listening, we are changing the world. And we don't think a few technical glitches are going to stand in the way. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Andrea Rossi will soon be graduating from Prescott College with a Master of Science in Sustainable Food Systems with a concentration in food justice. She is a practicing professional nutritionist and community herbalist who resides with her partner and dog in Colorado. Um, as an undergraduate at Fort Lewis College, her focus was gender and women's studies, and she also minored in sociocultural anthropology. Andrea is the founder of Dirt and Bones, where in her words, she supports big-hearted, big-impact humans in nurturing nervous system resilience through individualized nutrition therapy and herbal support, as well as through nature experience programs like Nurture by Nature and various community and plant gatherings. Andrea also participates in and facilitates ongoing herbal and food mutual aid networks. She supports and works for land repatriation for BIPOC communities and does other social justice and anti-racism work with the goals of advancing just, resilient, healthy, and equitable food systems and communities. My work specifically, I think that more nuanced work on dietary diversity versus calorie focused work is a really important direction so that we can, I think micronutrient fortification is really important and I understand the role that it plays. Um, I think that towards the importance of, you know, full spectrum diets and dietary diversity and looking at food systems in terms of bridging nutrition and health with access is also really, really important for the sustainability of efforts towards um, nourishment in children and adults um, and all populations. Welcome, Andrea. Hey, thanks, Lisa. It's really great to have you on the capstone and I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Thank you, me too. I'm excited to chat with you. You're such a great podcast host. No, flattery gets you everywhere. <laughs> well, listen, <True>. um, yeah, <laughs> you're joining us on the podcast today from the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. So tell me something interesting about where you live, maybe something that a bioregional perspective may have brought forward in the ways that you understand your place. Um, I think that's a great question. And I think um, I appreciate it for a lot of different reasons, but um, bioregions is something that 
a lot of times we don't think about when we're thinking about the places that we live. Um, and I think what's interesting about where I live right now, I reside in Boulder, Colorado. And so when I first started learning about bioregions, I specifically was thinking about the landforms and, um, and what constitute a place. And I live in this area where the plains kind of touch the Rocky Mountains um, in Colorado. But what is really interesting about my bioregion is that it's not just about the, the physical things that make it a place. It's also about the history that's there. And I've actually had a really hard time adjusting to the place that I live in. Um, and I've had a really hard time kind of adapting to both the cultural elements of the, the place and city that I live in, as well as even some of the, the physical manifestations of this place um, in terms of like the, the flora and fauna. And so for me, what I find really interesting about my bioregion is as I've learned more about it, I've learned a lot more about my history and connection to place. And I've started to learn more about what connects us to place. And so in Boulder in particular, <laughs> I found that um, I don't have as much like connection to this place. So I, I think what I'm trying to say is that I think that through learning more about the history, there's this way that I found that in our modern age, we tend to just travel places and we just assume, and I think this has to do a lot with the settler colonial mindset, that we assume that we can just move to different places and landscapes are just landscapes, not living and breathing entities that we interact with. And um, in my own experience, because I had never heard of other people struggling with the external places they were in, in the same way that I was, specifically not feeling like the actual um, natural environment felt cohesive. I felt like kind of a bit of an isolation in that. So in being in this place, I've really come to see how those legacies really matter. And in places where I have felt connection, I've learned that there's a lot of connection through my own ancestry to those types of flora and fauna. Yeah, that's so. really, really interesting. Um, I think that that's one thing that's really remarkable about um, cultivating kind of a bioregional perspective. It, it isn't all just the material. It isn't all just what you can sort of reference on a map or see in front of you that um, I think it can be very sensory. It can be intuitive. Um, you know, the ways that you understand and figure out how you are connected to place or not connected to place um, can come in a number of different ways. So that's, that's really a, a wonderful answer. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I know it's not maybe the expected answer, but I suppose it's the true answer. No, that's always best. Um, I wanted to pick up a little bit about something in your bio. You talked about being a nutrition and community herbalist. So what does this kind of work look like? Um, there may be people who aren't familiar with that. And what actually prepared you to do this kind of work? That's a great question. So with, with um, nutrition and community herbalism, um, there's a lot of different ways that that shows up in terms of working in terms of the nutrition component. There's, um, I think a lot of times when people think of nutrition, they typically think of dietetics or individuals who are working in maybe hospital settings. And I have worked in the past in a clinical setting in an actual clinic. Um, but the way that my nutrition and community herbalism typically shows up is more at the inter intersection of education, um, community, and I do do some individual work as well. So in terms of the types of things that I'm working with in community context, a lot of times I'll host 
gatherings, or I host things that are promoting wellness while also cultivating community connection. So I used to run a food swap. So a lot of the individuals in the group, they had specific dietary needs. They also had resource restriction in terms of financial resource restriction or time restrictions, or even health restrictions where their health situation kept them from being able to uh, have the physical ability to make the things they need to. So pre pre pandemic time, um, I would host these gatherings once a week where we'd all batch prepare meals and then swap it for the week. And it would meet everyone's dietary needs and they'd all have food for the week. And we were able to do it at a more cost-effective level. So that's one of the ways that I kind of merge these fields of nutrition and community. Um, and then it also looks like um, working with, with the herbalism portion works with, looks at working with plants. And um, in terms of when I'm working with people from a kind of more clinical perspective, I'm not working on looking at disease processes. I'm really looking at the entire portrait in the body. So the instead of symptom suppression, we're looking at re root work. So when I'm working with folks, it's very much looking at what's the overall system? How can we support the gastrointestinal system or the immune system or inflammatory balance or um, oxidative stress or mm -hmm. circadian rhythms? So those are some of the things that I'm thinking about in that work. So yeah. it's a bit of community work and a bit of individual work. Well, that's excellent. And, and, and I was thinking when you were talking about systems, um, you know, what I was going to ask you was how you really came to the study of sustainable food systems, but it sounds like you've been, you've been dealing in the world of systems thinking for a while anyway. Actually, that it's very true because before coming in, cause you mentioned where, where I, uh, what was my background in this? And so yeah. I've done, I've done programs where I went to a school, the nutrition therapy Institute in Denver. And then I also attended, um, root work, root works herbalism school. They have a decolonizing community herbalism program. And I've done the school for evolutionary herbalism. I've done a lot of different programs, but I'd say actually the most significant experience I had was mentorship under different practitioners that really operated from a system mentality. Mm -hmm. So um, one of my mentors was this woman named Dr. Nasher Winters, who's a naturopathic doctor. And she's also a fellow of the American Board of Naturopathic Oncology. And she wrote a book, book put out by uh, Chelsea, Chelsea Green Publishing called The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. And in that book, they really use a systems perspective in thinking about the body and in thinking about all of these different, as it says, metabolic approaches and metabolic ways and systems within the body. So right. before coming into sustainable food systems, I was really, really thinking in terms of interconnections. Um, it, but it was from that world that I really got interested in food systems because as I was working in nutrition and for a while I was working at an integrative oncology clinic, I really saw the importance of food and these overarching systems for people's health. I would see people with these, um, you know, these cancer prognoses that were connected to sometimes connected to different um, environmental toxin exposures that they'd had out in the world. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes they wanted to make changes in their life, but there was food access issues that were keeping them from doing that. And, and of course, there is all of these different syst systemic oppression forces that were playing out as well. So I moved from being interested in working in just that clinical environment to looking at this more 
holistic and um, systemic approach, I guess, through looking at the food systems. Andrea, I'd love to bring in another voice to the conversation now, um, your capstone advisor and the director of the Sustainable Food Systems Program at Prescott College, Dr. Robin Curry. Robin is an ethnoecologist and specializes in biodiversity and small-scale agricultural systems. And I think one of the many reasons Dr. Curry was a great choice as an advisor for Andrea is the fact that Robin is a former director of Mercy Corps, an international development and humanitarian organization where she worked in Kyrgyzstan. Um, Robin's academic interests focus on food systems at the nexus of nutrition, agroecology, micro-entrepreneurship, and rural finance for smallholder farmers. So a lot of crossover there. Um, welcome, Robin. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here in support of Andrea. <laughs> Great. I'm glad you're here as well. Um, well, first, I'd like to ask Andrea a question about her project specifically, but I think following that, Robin, you might also have some interesting insights uh, on what I'm going to ask. Um, Andrea, your project is international in scope, and um, it seems to have developed after recognizing a very specific need. So I'd like you to tell us the title of your capstone and really what it entails. Yeah, um, I, my project is international. And so the title for my project is Organizational Capacity and Performance Support for an Improved Bangladeshi School Feeding Program. So my project's interesting because it's really focusing on doing research that's going to be supporting an organization in Bangladesh that is then supporting um, their aims. So in Bangladesh, there's many different river island communities there that experience high rates of food insecurity. Um, and as a result, the children of some of these communities experience significant malnutrition. And there's this organization in Bangladesh called the Amal Foundation, and they address school child malnutrition on the river island of Sonpacha with a school feeding program. So they, they work with around 50 kids in this program. And they noted that the remote location presents challenges specifically for providing consistent diversified produce. So they were really interested in learning about international best practices to provide dietary diversity in this remote resource restricted island community that they serve. So um, it, I wanted to offer with my capstone a way to support their work, to support their staff, because like many small nonprofits, they don't have a ton of financial resources, they've restricted time, and they're helping a wide variety of people. This program on Sonpacha is just one of many different programs that they have. So my capstone is putting together a systematic literature review, writing a best practices document, and then presenting that information to a mall foundation to offer information that can then help them improve their dietary diversity school feeding program or potentially raise funds for it in the future. So that's that's what my project is. Wow, that's awesome. And and it's it's so specific. So I'm wondering what your connections are to the Amal Foundation and to Sonpacha. It is very specific. Um, many, many years ago in Boulder, actually, I had, I had just returned from doing an international trip uh, where I'd been working in Mumbai and I'd been doing some food systems work in uh, Mumbai that was volunteer work primarily. And 
that's kind of what got me interested in doing more international food systems work before I applied to Prescott College. And um, so there was a woman who was in Boulder at the time, and her name is Eve Karim, and she was here for a um, for a uh, college degree in entrepreneurship and social entrepreneurship. And she's from Bangladesh. And her desire was to go back to Bangladesh and start up this organization. This was many years ago. I want to say it was close to seven years ago. And her desire was to go back and create this organization to help the individuals that she saw in her community that were really vulnerable to um, essentially vulnerable to food insecurity or workforce displacement or education inequity or health disparity. So through a mutual friend, we got connected so that I could actually just support her in the very early phases of her starting this nonprofit. So that was many years ago. And she's this really wonderful woman that went on to start this organization that's just grown since then. So I just reconnected with her and just asked if she had any needs, if there was anything I could do for my capstone that would support what they were doing for their organization. And so that's how we came to um, connect. That's an amazing story. And I'm sure Robin has some follow-ups to that, but I'm just brought back around to our conversation about place and synchronicities. <laughs> Had you not been in that place, <laughs> you might never have met and this project would never have happened. And all of the good stuff that is bound to happen from it, you know, would not be. So that's kind of an interesting link to, to place as well. <laughs> it just struck me. <laughs> but Robin, did you have anything you wanted to say with regard to the international scope? Yes. Uh, you know, one of the things that I really appreciated about Andrea and as she was thinking about what she wanted to do for her capstone was the approach um, that she took. All too often in international work, there's this idea that like, I can add something to what others are doing already. But Andrea's approach was to be very respectful of the organizations that are already in existence and already embedded in the community. So, um, you know, it made great sense for her to reach out to a mall foundation and then ask, you know, how can I support your work? What is Mm -hmm. it that you're having a hard time, you know, finding the time to really dig deep on. And um, one of the things I really appreciated about uh, this research topic is that, you know, food, um, food security interventions and international development have really been historically geared towards, um, you know, more uh, rapid, um, less food-based approaches. So for example, food fortification is often considered, you know, a frontline intervention in uh, supporting food insecurity internationally. And, you know, that's great while you still have access to, you know, the sprinkles is what they call them, or if um, government is able to, um, you know, mandate uh, that the foods be fortified like they are here in the United States. But um, but then you have issue with food access and frankly, sometimes um, uh, corruption. So sometimes you can't trust uh, the labeling as to whether or not the foods are fortified. And then another strategy has been in-kind uh, food donations. So um, even, you know, this day, so the United States exports uh, commodities for donations um, throughout the globe. So we're shipping uh, U.S. food to other parts on the planet. And clearly there's some long-term sustainability, um, you know, concerns with those approaches. And so really food 
food-based approaches are what we're beginning to um, understand are really the way to have longer term impact. But unfortunately, um, the documentation of the impact of such interventions is, is so sparse for lack of a better word. So I was really excited when Andrea came to me with this idea of like, well, let's find out about what works, you know, what works right. out there in food-based interventions. Right. Yeah. And, you know, um, along those lines, you know, of course, all capstones have a literature review, but you were talking about Andrea, your approach being um, really more sensitive to sort of really helping the organization um, find out what's out there and what works. You um, engaged with what you characterize as a systematic literature review. So um, how do you understand the difference between just that and a, and a literature review, Andrea? And secondly, um, how did you design the systematic literature review for the project? So the way that I understand a literature review versus a systematic literature review is that a literature review is something that you that all of us, when we're writing different research papers, have to gather literature for our topic, but it doesn't necessarily have to cover all of the literature. And generally, when folks do a literature review, they can pull papers that support the thesis that they're trying to write about. Um, whereas with a systematic literature review, it requires a research question, it requires outlining search terms, databases, it requires really rigorously keeping track of how you're going through the process. And in doing that, you're reviewing all of the literature um, from all of the different sources that you've specified in a way that's repeatable and also is going to uncover specific information about the info about all of the different papers that are talking talking about that topic and so why I find a systematic literature review really helpful is because it's something that can give us information about kind of the comprehensive body of literature on a specific topic and we often see this used in health sciences and I've actually referred to quite a few different systematic literature reviews because it gives you a sense of the different trends that are happening in health sciences where they'll look to see, you know, how a medication is being used or they'll look to see what different um, uh, lab results mean. And they'll look at these things through this kind of systematic, comprehensive review of the literature. So that's kind of how I understand a systematic literature review versus a regular literature review, where one is a, very much a research process, whereas the other one is something that can <clears throat> gather research and gather information, but is not necessarily following any specific methodology. Well, you talked about um, sources relative to your searching, um, and I know you're aware of the extent to which academia has historically marginalized sort of ways of knowing that aren't derived from a degree. Um, are you finding or have you found in your, in your research um, ways to uncover and include indigenous or traditional knowledge, or is this just a huge obstacle given the current system? This is a big obstacle. Um, this can be a really challenging thing to do for a number of reasons. It's definitely something that we talked about in terms of how do we get the most comprehensive review specifically for this question. Because my question for this process is looking at what are the international best practices 
within Asian countries for improving the dietary diversity of a school feeding program in this kind of like remote resource restricted flood prone community. So I'm specifically looking for interventions that happen in a specific demographic, which is this kind of school age thing and where people are giving food. And so those things are being done out in the world. And so we, we decided to choose looking at, you know, organizational databases and not just the academic literature so that we could try and include more to, to get that into the research. But it's challenging to really uncover and include because many of these organizations that are out in the world are not able to document they might not have the capacity or the funding to monitor, evaluate, and record the information that they're doing. And so it might not be getting into different documentation. And additionally, in just my experience of going through these different databases, many of the databases aren't necessarily set up in such a way um, that they're anticipating someone using it for a literature review. So they might not have, uh, so even though I'm going into these different databases and looking for the different information, it might be there and it might not be coming up because the database itself is actually not structured in such a way that it can pull those reports to be able to review. So there's just a lot of different challenges and I'm sure Robin can actually speak to this more as to some of the challenges of really making the systematic lit review something that really is inclusive of many different voices. Yeah, I'll take that cue because what, what Andrea has been able to do, I mean, she made a huge understatement when she said that it's a challenge <laughs> to find some of this documentation and it might be helpful to, um, you know, understand why it's so challenging. Mm -hmm. um, right. You know, first of all, there's, there's a challenge for any of us who work interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary is that every single discipline has its own, you know, currency of communication, its own, um, you know, format for writing reports or uh, websites that you would frequent or even, um, you know, journals where information is published. So there's just that functional challenge of being completely overwhelmed <laughs> by all of the, the different places that those communications might show up. Um, but there's also, you know, Andrea mentioned this, but in, in international development, you know, the, of course, time is money and there are grant funds allocated for these types of interventions. And so then all of the uh, monitoring, evaluation, and, you know, learning activities, impact evaluation is built into these budgets. And um, it really actually wasn't until recently, so we're talking the 2000s, where um, there started being um, required allocations in the budgets for this uh, monitoring and evaluation. So now some donors will require that you allocate up to 4% of your budget to this, whereas others uh, do not permit it. So if the organization wants to uh, try to get like their lessons learned out um, into the public realm, um, then uh, that's on their own their own dimes. So internal organizational funds, and as we know, nonprofit organizations tend to be um, busy, and everybody's working more than um, their fair share 
anyway. Um, and then there's a third dimension to this is that, you know, they're just, there has historically been a bias in the literature against um, the publication of applied research projects. And especially when you're looking at food-based intervention, the timeline uh, for impact can be significant. So like a regular master's student attends university for, you know, two years, a PhD student, you know, maybe five years. Well, if it takes a while for you to devise the planting plans and work with the communities for culturally acceptable foodstuffs, and then actually, you know, work on the growing side of things, and then actually have that food available for consumption, these timelines can create some barriers for being able to uh, publish in, um, outlets that, um, you know, are traditionally uh, searched uh, during these systematic literature reviews. I'm wondering if there are leverage points um, at all within, you know, that, that academics can sort of look to, to sort of shift this system. Do you have thoughts about that? <laughs> Uh, yes, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and some of them are um, projects like Andrea's that can help bring to our attention where these knowledge gaps are. Um, and so originally the intent was to help identify best practice, right, for the Amal Foundation. But what Andrea's finding is that, you know, there are these gaps. And so, you know, solid scientists love a challenge. And so whenever a gap is really identified, then, you know, that becomes a leverage point for maybe being able to, you know, bring about change in the system. So you are currently analyzing the data that you've assembled from the systematic literature review, Andrea, and what are you learning? Well, as many people who do research know, <laughs> I'm learning a lot of some, some things I was thinking I would and a lot of things I wasn't expecting. <laughs> so um, with the systematic uh, literature review, to, to Robin's point, it's, it's uh, where she was discussing many of the challenges that exist and many of the holes in the research. I, I feel like that's actually what this whole process is bringing up more than anything. Um, I was hoping that it would bring back a lot of results related to my research question. And I am getting some research that will be able to go towards more of kind of a case review. Um, but the majority has actually turned into this other piece where most of the time, for those that are familiar with systematic liter literature reviews, you have your inclusion criteria and your exclusion criteria and your papers that get excluded kind of just like go bye-bye. And the ones that you wanna use become part of your discussion section. My paper is going to be a little bit different because the papers that were excluded actually start to tell a story. So I'm actually mapping out every paper that's being excluded to demonstrate the reasons why it was excluded because that has started to show us where money and energy and research, or at least in the academic sense that we have access to, is going, term, going towards an international development food security efforts. So a few of the things that I've seen is that many of the studies that have been excluded were because they were outside of the region. Um, many of them were in different African countries. Um, and many of the studies were focused on a different population that under, that under five age, because oftentimes that's a target age for 
dealing with different malnutrition issues because you can make such a difference in stunting and these sorts of things. And I would argue that we still need to be looking at nutrition through the lifetime because those nutritional needs don't stop after the age of five. It may change the types of results that we can get, but a lot of the research really focuses on that under five or under two age bracket. And then another intervention or another thing that I've seen in the research is that a lot of the interventions in food security to Robin's earlier point, really look at the micronutrient fortification of food. And this could be for a lot of different reasons, but one of the reasons is because it's a really fast intervention that then you can quickly see the progress, but micronutrient fortification of food is challenging because it, it's something that needs a specific supply chain for, you need to make sure that there isn't going to be any sort of, um, irregularities in the micronutrient status of the food or anything that's fraudulent where foods are going to people that don't have the right levels of micronutrients. So these are the types of things that my exclusion is demonstrating. So my paper is going to be going into both what the cases I've found are revealing in answer to my research question, but also having a really big conversation about the things that are getting priority. And not that those things shouldn't get priority, but offering some different rationale for why we need to extend that priority um, to these other things. And as an invitation as well to the academics that are doing that work, to the organizations that are doing that work to potentially collate it. And that would actually be one of my hopes for the future is that there would be a way that we could start to, um, find ways to bridge that applied and academic side so that we can gather those things that are happening out in the field and be able to really develop best practices in this kind of comprehensive way, because there, I, I you know, there, that's something that exists, but is not always being documented for all of those reasons that Robin mentioned as well. The, the finances, the time being overstretched, all of these things. I love that approach, Andrea. That's brilliant. Projects like yours, where you are cooperating with an agency or a community group, um, you know, they can be incredibly rewarding because you have all these opportunities to establish meaningful relationships, but I can imagine it's also challenging in some ways. Um, what have you learned about the process of working with an international development organization? In working with an international development organization, I had the benefit of working with someone that I knew from the past. So we already had an established relationship. So in that ways, it was a really pleasant and nice experience because I already had this relationship with this individual. Um, there were a lot of different challenges, some that I expected and some that I didn't expect. So um, one of the ones that I probably should have expected but didn't was the challenge of time differences mm -hmm. because Bangladesh time to Colorado time is really challenging. So as a researcher that really wanted to support this organization, I realized that I needed to change my mentality because it couldn't be about them meeting my timeline. I was coming in really wanting to support them. Them. And if that was truly what I wanted, then I realized I needed to be really flexible to the times that worked for them in the organization to connect, to have conversations. And I also had to be really time sensitive because they have a lot on their plate. And so I had to make sure that when I was meeting with anyone in the organization, I was very clear on what we were going to talk about and make sure that I really respected the amount of time that we allocated for the conversation because they had a lot more in their plate and try and get all of that 
to really matter. So learning that time difference piece and really being adaptable to the needs of the organization felt really important. And one of the things I did anticipate because of my time living in Mumbai was that there were infrastructure issues. So in Bangladesh, you know, if they had a monsoon, technology could go out or access to access to power or access to the internet. Um, which could challenge communications or the internet in some cases was faulty. So I learned to have quite a few different ways that we could communicate, whether that was like through a WhatsApp app, through a Facebook uh, chat or through a Facebook um, video call or through a Zoom call. I always had multiple things kind of pulled up and ready for however the organization wanted to connect with me. Um, And then finally, I would say the other thing that I've really considered quite a bit is I am a white woman living in the United States, and there is a history of, um, there is a history of colonialism, and there's a history of uh, white saviorism, or not history of, there's a current practice of white these were things that I wanted to be really intentional about and really be looking at within myself and making sure that I was really being in service to the organization and the organization's needs. And so I think, and that's constantly, that's an ongoing internal process and, and also getting external feedback either through people's direct communications or through, um, or through subtle communications as well. So those were all the things that I was thinking about and keeping in mind when working with an international development organization. Yeah, that that positionality piece is really critical, and then I'm you know I'm really glad that you are actively and you know reflexively engaging with that. And I know Robin, you're still actively working in Kyrgyzstan on a number of levels. Um, what are your thoughts, maybe, to students who are interested in doing international development, um, working with groups, uh, international development organizations? Yeah, thank you. I, I I do remain engaged in in Kyrgyzstan, both uh, as a as a friend of <laughs> you know folks that I developed wonderful relationships with over the you know about fifteen years that I was there, but also as a co researcher. Um, and uh, then I remain engaged um, as a board director for a community development financial institution. And, um, you know, when I was directing Mercy Corps, we had a very robust um, internship program at Mercy Corps uh, Kyrgyzstan, and of course, globally also. And um, and it, it was very interesting because everything that Andrea identified as sort of what are the motivations for folks interested in heading to uh Central Asia, you know, uh, trying to understand if those motivations are or could be for the benefit of the communities that we were trying to support, or if they were more for the benefit of the putting the internship. So, I think the first step in that process is is a is a self check on what why am I doing this and mm-hmm. why am I interested in doing this? And um, sometimes uh, people can be most effective in their own communities as opposed to um, the communities of of others. So, um, you know, oftentimes uh, folks will ask me, you know, well, how do I get engaged in international development? And I will say, well, perhaps you wish to engage in 
your own community first and supporting, um, you know, issues that you care about and learning some of those uh, skill sets um, in, in your own community and then uh, figure out later if you can support um, actors, if you will, who are already engaged in um, and embedded in uh the communities of others, um, because uh, frankly, there's um, amazing expertise uh, in existence in every community globally, um, and oftentimes there are you know, just colonial legacies as to why um, mm-hmm. certain countries or communities are are challenged or interethnic conflicts or internal uh, issues in the country. So, you know, it really is just to stop and pause and figure out why, why, right. why am I interested? It's that whole motivation and capacity piece. And it's just so important. And I, and I found that in my own courses where um, I have students doing um, oral history collection and um, before going into the field, I really have them engaged with this whole, you know, writing a positionality statement, you know, engaging with these questions of trying to find out what it is their motivations are, where they're coming from, how they might, um, you know, what their biases are, um, thinking about some of these questions to, to understand you know, before they go and interact with other people, where they're coming from with all of that. But also, you know, as you were saying, Robin, just that, you know, the the capacity and where that lies, you know, is that, is it really for your work in your own community um, or or what? So that's, um, that's really great. And I hope that that students um, interested in doing this kind of work will, will take that to heart. Um, I do want to ask Andrea, um, because I know that increasingly scholars are working collaboratively collaboratively with communities. And they're finding ways to increase knowledge that just won't sit around in a bound volume on a library shelf, but it's like sort of really actively engaging with them for positive change. So I'm wondering, I'm curious about how your project has influenced how you feel about the future of food system scholarship. I think that my my project has made me feel like this shift towards collaboration with communities is necessary. Not something that we can think is like, oh, that's a nice way to do things. I, I, I'm not quite sure I, that's how people think of it, but, but it's actually something that's really necessary to bring about the types of things that we want to in the world. And that there really needs to be this, um, this collabor- collaboration happening between people in the academic sphere and the applied sphere. Um, and a way to be able to share that information and to really value different ways that knowledge comes into being. So not necessarily just through scholarly journals, but also being able to take the other types of transmissions. So yes, I would say the collaboration between academics and applied professionals is really important and necessary work, as well as making sure that the things that we are doing as academics on the research end are useful to people that are are making change out in the world so that those partnerships are really important so that we're both they're grounded in mutual care for one another and making sure that the things that we want to do are happening because there's so many people doing research and there's so many people with different types of wisdom and different types of knowledge traditions and so finding ways to bring those together i feel like can only enhance the the goals that people have for themselves 
and also help to bridge that challenge with many organizations having these issues of time and financial constraints and connecting them to individuals that are academics that are wanting to do research that is useful and used and read out in the world. So there's a few things that I think would be really helpful. Um, definitely improved databases that are user-friendly to a lot of different individuals for use. There were some databases that felt really technical and would be challenging for anyone to just sit down and use. And then there were other ones that felt not user-friendly at all, like I wasn't quite sure who they had in mind would be able to use that search engine to look for things. So there's a lot of different, you know, tangible logistical ways that I think those collaborations could happen just in terms of improving communication systems, both electronically and um, just uh, in terms of like networking. Um, so those are some of the things that I feel would are just really important going forward. And then with my work specifically, I think that more nuanced work on dietary diversity versus calorie focused work is a really important direction so that we can, I think micronutrient fortification is really important and I understand the role that it plays. Um, and I think that towards the importance of you know, full spectrum diets and dietary diversity and looking at food systems in terms of bridging nutrition and health with access is also really, really important for the sustainability of efforts towards um, nourishment in children and adults um, and all populations. Well, Andrea and Robin, thank you both for a great conversation and for being guests on the Capstone. Thank you. It was my pleasure to be here to support Andrea, and uh, I'm glad to have her research out there. Thanks so much for having me, Lisa, and thanks so much, Robin, for your support during this capstone process. It's been invaluable. And we really want to thank all of you who are out there listening as well. Uh, I invite you to check out our webpage, thecapstone.info, for all of our other episodes. Thanks, and be well. You've been listening to The Capstone a podcast produced by the Sustainable Food Systems Program at Prescott College. This is a podcast series that celebrates the potential for a more just and resilient food system by showcasing the research and fresh new perspectives presented by graduate students in the program. As a culmination of their graduate work, students present a capstone project, an opportunity to impact food systems in their communities and bioregions, drawing on the coursework and the expertise of faculty members. The podcast is offered as an insider's view to some of the most pressing issues involving food systems today, expressed through interviews, stories, and lived experiences. In addition to hearing from the graduate students, we explore the significance of their work in the context of creating food systems change with community leaders and faculty members that serve as student advisors. The Master of Science in Sustainable Food Systems at Prescott College is an online degree offering three areas of concentration, food justice, sustainable diets and biodiversity, and food entrepreneurship. Prescott College also offers a dual degree combining the Master of Business Administration in Sustainable Leadership and the Master of Science in Sustainable Food Systems. If you're interested and want some more information, see www.prescott.edu.